Thank you, Kristen. If you have a visitor slip or a prayer request, our deacons are going to come walk the aisles, and we'd be happy to grab those and receive those from you. We're going to be in the book of Exodus uh, this morning, but we'll be jumping around quite a bit. So as you're turning there, um, I wanted to tell you about my grandmother. My grandmother lived, uh, my grandparents lived uh, in Orlando when I was growing up, which was a couple hours uh, east of me. And a couple times a year, we would go there and, um, and have dinner and spend time together. And I remember a couple of things about my grandmother. Uh, the first thing I remember about her uh, is that she loved to watch Jeopardy. And she was really good at it. And so we'd watch, we'd watch Jeopardy together, and she would always get the answers straight away. Uh, the second thing I remember about her, uh, Namal, if I called her uh, Namal, was that she was an a, a, a incredible reader. She read anything and everything, and her book was littered with, uh, excuse me, her house was littered with books all over the house. And the third thing I remember about her was that in their, one of their rooms in their house, they had these Russian nesting dolls. And if you've never seen these things, these were uh, these, these dolls that you used to have one that would just sit there and they would kind of round it off. And, and then you could take it apart about halfway and you would find another one in there. And then you could take that one off halfway and find another one in there. And usually there's about five or six or so that were in there. And it was just kind of a, just a piece of decor. I don't know. Uh, but they've been around for, for a while. And I, I had never seen something like that. And I thought that was really interesting. And so when I think about my grandmother, those three things... Uh, come to my mind. And the last one, the Russian nesting dolls are, are, are particularly important to our conversation and our engagement with the text today because I think that this idea that this, this doll that's in a doll that's in a doll is going to help us as we walk through our scripture today, but in reverse. So we're going to start with the, the smallest one and work our way up, and I hope that you'll see what I'm, what I'm trying to uh, get at as we walk through. When we think about scripture, we tend to think of scripture as, uh, sometimes we think of scripture as a bunch of disconnected stories that have no relation to each other, that it's just um, uh, one story here, one story there, and that's about it. But when we look at the the whole corporate of scripture, what we find is that we have 66 books in our Bible, uh, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. They were written over the course of about 1,500 years. Uh, about 40 different authors, most of whom did not know each other. Uh, some of these authors were uh, shepherds, some were kings, some were prophets, some were fishermen, some were military leaders. You had people from all different walks of life that were writing books of inspired scripture. The books come from three separate continents, written in three different languages. And what's incredible is that when you take all those things together, they are all, and you look at the big story, the big picture of Scripture, that it's not 66 different stories, but it's rather one story with a capital S. And they are all, in some way, shape, or form, pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards him. Everything in the New Testament is pointing right back at him. And so what I wanted to do in our time together this morning, we're gonna, like I said, we are going to jump around a little bit, but we'll be headquartered in Exodus 26. When we look at Scripture, again, this idea that there's this cohesive story, this cohesive narrative, there are a couple, there are a number of themes that run all throughout it. Just to give you two very brief examples. Number one, that the choosing of Israel, this idea that God would choose the people for himself. You might remember that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God, when God had chosen Israel, he flat out says, I, I didn't choose you because you were worth, like there was anything noteworthy about you. In, in fact, he said it's quite the opposite. He said, I chose you as a people group simply because I wanted to. 
And then we see in the New Testament that the same thing goes for our salvation, that God had chosen us for salvation, not because we're strong and mighty, not because we have anything to brag about it, but because simply, he just simply wanted to. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, well before you and I could ever do anything to merit it. We also see another theme of Jesus as the Passover lamb, which is a beautiful theme that we see all throughout Scripture. In Exodus chapter 12, the the final straw that broke the back of uh, Pharaoh in Egypt was that, um, that God took the lives of the firstborn and because he took the lives of the firstborn, that, uh, that, that Pharaoh finally decided to let them go. But before that, God told the people of Israel to take a lamb without blemish, to kill it, and to put its blood on the, on the doorpost of their house. And what was going to happen then was that the angel of death would come through, he would see the blood, and he would pass over that house and then spare that family. That the blood of that lamb covered them. The blood of that lamb spared their lives. And when we get to the New Testament, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Jesus is called the great Passover lamb, that he was the one who was, uh, who was without blemish and without spot, that he is the one, that his blood takes away all of our sin, the connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so again, we see this, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that we see this idea of these themes running all throughout and this reverse Russian nesting doll as we walk through our scripture. But first, a recap. How does scripture begin? How did the Bible begin? Well, God creates a good world and things are good. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, there's almost, it's almost like a rhythmic poetry to it, that God created and it was good. God created and it was good. And then when, and then when Adam sees Eve for the first time, what does he do? He breaks out in song that it is beautiful. It's a good world. But we know that things go poorly. And in Genesis chapter 3, sin entered the world because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. And because of that, ever since then, we're seeing the repercussion. That all the suffering, all the pain, all the heartache, all the angst that we have in our world right now, it's directly because of the fall, because of Genesis chapter 3. Now, we know that God's going to remove Adam and Eve from the garden. But what's interesting is that before he does that, he extends grace to them. He had, told, he had told them that if they ate from the tree and disobeyed them, that they would surely die. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. He does spare their life physically, but there, but there is a death of sorts that happens here. Even though they're alive, there's still there's a spiritual disconnect that's going on. That the fellowship between God and man is now significantly different. And he removes them from the garden. He removes them from where the very presence of God was in, a, in an incredibly intimate way. But I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 3, the last couple of verses, in verses 23 and 24, he says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out, of the, out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the, the way to the tree of life. And so God removes Adam and Eve from the garden, from his presence, from his intimate presence. And he also installed cherubim, which was uh, uh, an angel of sorts, to, to prevent them from returning. That the one who would charge with caring for this land is now cast away from it. They're literally driven out. We don't know a whole lot uh, about the nature of the cherubim, and that's not exactly the, the focus of our conversation today. But, but what matters most here is that these cherubim, these angelic beings, were sent to protect the garden, to guard uh, a re-entry of sorts. 
So let's go to Exodus 25. We go to Exodus 25 through 26. This is where we see our first nesting doll. At this point, God, again, God has rescued the people from Egypt, and he had done incredible miracles as part of a deliverance, deliverance from oppression and slavery. In Exodus chapter 13, we see that God leads them during the day by a pillar of cloud, and at night by a pillar of fire. He is with them every step of the way. And in Exodus 25, verse 8, God makes an incredible statement. He says, and let then, the people, let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. And he says, hey, get all of your great contractors, get all, get all of your woodworkers, get all of your, your skillsmen, your craftsmen, and build me a house. Build me a tent, build me a tabernacle so that he would be with them. He would be near them. But they had spent all this time wandering, but he wanted to be with them in a very special and intimate way. This is incredible if you think about it. That the God who made the universe, whose very presence, just before that, whose very presence had caused Mount Sinai to shake, to be surrounded by thunder, to be, to be surrounded by lightning, that the people were so terrified that they said to Moses, you go talk to, them, to him, we can't do it, otherwise we're going to die. That God of power and majesty, that God says, I want to dwell with them. And he says, in effect, I'll put myself in a box so that we might be near each other. So this takes us to the first point. When we look at the tabernacle in verse 20, uh, excuse me, chapter 26, we see the form of the tabernacle, the form of the tabernacle. So let's see how the tabernacle is designed. That God gives uh, the people specific instruction, uh, a blueprint of how the tent, the tent was to be uh, built. And when we read this chapter, we see the dimensions of the tent. So as you read this, depending on your translation, you will probably have a, a unit of measure called a cubit. And a, basically a cubit with about a foot and a half. A cubit with about a foot and a half. And so just to summarize it, here's how we might summarize the blueprint. His God dwelling place faced east and had two rooms. The east room was an outer room or an entrance room called the holy place that was 30 feet long and 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. In it were three pieces of furniture, a table, a lampstand, and an altar. And on the west was an inner or a back room called the most holy place, which is in our text for today. And this was a dimensionally a, a cube. It was 15 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. And in this cube was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box with a special platform. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And on, it, on its lid, that symbolized the presence of God. And so here we have it. Right here in this text, the very presence of God would be associated with the people every single moment of the day. And what crazy as well is that it moved. It, it, would, it would a mobile house. That every time they would go somewhere, they'd pack everything up, they'd throw it over their shoulders, and they'd move to the next place. In Numbers 19, we, we learned that during the day, a cloud would cover the tabernacle, and again, a fire would be over it during the night. And this might remind us of how God, again, brought the people out of Egypt. The same thing happened here. But in, in verses 31 through 35, we want to focus on the most innermost section of the tabernacle, the, the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. 
We read that the smaller cubic room held the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, which we did cover. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But what's interesting about this room is that there's only one person who could ever enter this room, and it's one day out of the year. And that person was the high priest, and the day was Yom Kippur, which we call the Day of Atonement. That the very presence of God was to be understood as present in this room. And so because of that, it had to be set apart. Look at verse 31. In verse 31, you see, there's an interesting detail there. It said the cherubim, the, again, the angels back from what we saw in Genesis, the cherubim were skillfully worked into it, which is to say that this veil that's now been put up is separating man from the very intimate and holy presence of God, that God was near, as we see in, in, the, in the pillar of smoke and fire, but this, there's still this, this sense of distance. And just as the the cherubim guarded Eden and prevented Adam and Eve from returning, we see the same idea here. So this was the mobile tent that the people of God would use for for about 400 years or so. And about 400 years later, David's asking God, King David said, God, let me build you a house, like a a permanent one. We're tired of wandering around. Let Let me build you a permanent house. But God tells them that his hands are too bloody. And that he, says, he says to David, you're not going to do it, but your son is. We learn about this temple in 1 Kings chapter 6 and 2 Chronicles chapter 3. And what's interesting is when you read 2 Chronicles chapter 3, when they build the Holy of Holies there, when you look at the dimensions, that in the first one, the tent, it's a small 15 by 15 foot. And the, the temple, the, the permanent one, is 30 by 30. It doubled in size. 15 by, going by 15 by 15 to 30 by 30. And not only that, Solomon just, just spares no expense and coats the entire place in gold. And, second, and also in Second Chronicles chapter 3, in verse 1, we see where Solomon built his temple. That of all the places that he could have chosen, could have looked around and said, I want to, I want to go there, 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 he chooses one specific place, and it's Mount Moriah. Now, where have we heard that name before? Going back to Genesis chapter 22. Where Abraham tells, excuse me, where God tells Abraham to sacrifice your son, your one and only son, and he goes to Mount Moriah. And just before it happened, God, God steps in and provides a substitute, provides a ram to substitute as either. This, is, this theme of substitution is one that we see all throughout Scripture. And especially in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, and especially. Into, not, not just the, what we see highlighted in the form, but also in the function of the tabernacle, which is our second point. So this idea of, of substitution leads us to the function of the tabernacle, which in this function has really uh, multiple um, uh, points here. At first, it restores God's presence in an intimate and profound way. That what it, what it had been lost in Eden is now regained. That the sanctuary is a restoration of Eden, but it's also a way for man to be restored with God. And so we have God with man, man with God. So number one, God meets man. That the temple is where God's presence resides. That the, the creator of the universe comes down to the world that he created. And this sanctuary is quite literally where heaven meets earth. That to be in the house of God was to be in the very presence of God. 
that to be, to be in the house of God was to be in the presence of God, which is why you have David in Psalm 26, verse 8. He says this, I, Oh, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. For David, again, in Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing, out of all the things you could ask, one thing I, I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's why he's asking those things, because the very presence of God is housed in that tent, is housed in that box. But there's an interesting question here. That traditionally, Christians have spoken of God as being omnipresent, that, that, which is to say that he is uh, everywhere, at all places, at all times. But, but the question is, can we really house an omnipresent God? Well, in Psalm 139, which is a, a beautiful psalm that we're familiar with, and we're usually familiar with Psalm 139 because of verse 13, uh, which says that, that God has formed my inward parts and had knitted me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The beautiful verse, which, which really is one of the reasons why Christians have historically been for, uh, uh, rather against abortion, for pro-life, that we hate abortion because abortion is the taking of innocent human life. Historically, that's why Christians have always advocated that humans have intrinsic value from womb to tomb. But Psalm 139 also talks about God's omnipresence. In verses 7 through 10, David says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. So God is everywhere. Now, that's not to say that God is in everything. There's a difference there. So that, 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 uh, to say that God is in everything would be uh, what's called pantheism, which is to say that God is like in this altar. He's in this microphone. He's in, he's in your car tires. He is in everything. But rather, he is not in everything, but he is everywhere. That all throughout Scripture, God makes a clear distinction between the created things and the creator is one of the things that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. That we, talk, we, we went over a couple weeks ago. That there's a very important distinction between creator and created. Historically, Christians have articulated that God is, is both transcendent, but he's also imminent. That he's transcendent, that he's an independent being separate from the rest of his creation. Again, Romans chapter 1, also Isaiah chapter 6 where the angels are surrounding God, where Isaiah gets this vision of heaven, and there's just, there's just crying out and repeating over and over that God is holy, 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 that he is separate. He is superior over all things. But even though he's different, or distant, or distinct, more appropriately, he is also imminent, that he is intimately and intricately involved with his creation. That when God made Adam... He formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Genesis chapter 2. In Jeremiah 23, am I a God, what God's saying, and this is him asking these questions, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I can't see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? 
And so there's there's a balance that needs to be had uh, had here. We need to keep ourselves from going one uh, extreme to the other. That if we overstress and overemphasize that God is transcendent, then we we risk losing any sense that He's there because He He's just too far out there. We we lose the idea that He is near His people because He's too far out. And we and we we have a we have an impersonal God. But at the same time, too, if we overstress it imminent which is to say that God is here, then we risk turning into a pantheist to say that God is in this altar, that God's in the pews that you're sitting, that God's in your shirt that you're wearing. And so the temple that, that we're reading about is a perfect example of this balance, that God is clearly distinct, he is clearly separate from his creation, but he's also intimately accessible. He is intimately personal. And this is partly what the veil symbolized, that this, this restoration of what was lost in Eden. So God meets man, that the temple was significant not only because of what it represented, but also because of what happened in it. And that's where man meets God. And how did man meet God here? Well, he meets God through the offering of sacrifices. That God instituted a sacrificial system by which the Israelite could make atonement for their sin. That they would bring an animal... They would slaughter that animal, and through the death of that animal, their sin would be covered. And just a week and a half ago, September 16th, was Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. And this, this is the, the most significant day on the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement. We read about this day in, in Leviticus chapter 16. And what would happen on this special day, this most holy of days on the Jewish calendar, is that the high priest would first take a bath. He would bathe. And he would put on a very simple linen instead of the very extravagant um, uh, ephod, which is basically a coat that had, uh, had gems and color and all. It was a gorgeous piece of, uh, of outerwear. So he put on a very simple linen. And what he would also do in addition to that is that he would wear a, a, a belt, he would wear bells around him somehow, either around his waist or on his feet. And the reason why he would wear bells, one of the reasons for that, is because if there was a simple, uh, uh, there was a very strict protocol that, that he would follow while he was making atonement for the sins of the people. And, and if he broke protocol, God told them that he was going to die. And so, they, so they're, he's wearing bells. That way, when he goes into the inner room, all the other priests that are hanging out outside, they can hear him walking around. And if the event, in the event that God killed him, they could pull him out by rope. A very serious responsibility. He'd also, what would he do? The question that he first sacrificed a bull for both his sin and for the, and for the sin of the other priest. He would take the blood and then he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Now, what is the mercy seat? The mercy seat is, is, the, is, the, is the cover of the ark, and what it, and it was basically about four feet long and two feet wide. And what it symbolized was the very throne of God Himself. That God was sitting, is sitting on that throne. It is his seat. And then in addition to that, he would bring, he'd go and get two goats. And he'd bring these two goats to the front of the tent. And then one of these, one of these goats would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. We see all throughout scripture that the wages of sin is death. And so this goat would take the punishment that the people deserved and he would be killed on their behalf. But in addition, there's still one goat. And so what they would do with the other goat is, is the high priest would take his hand, he put it on, on the head of the other goat, 
And we get the word scapegoat from this, uh, from this process. And the scapegoat would then, after having all the sins of the people confessed upon it, the, the scapegoat would be led outside the camp. And what it meant, what it symbolized, was that the sins of the people are being taken away. The people aren't paying for those sins. Somebody else is being, or something else, is being substituted for them. And what's interesting as well is when you read Leviticus chapter 16, where it says that the, the, the goat is being sent out, that's the same word, going back to Genesis chapter th- uh, 3, where the people are sent out, where Adam and Eve are sent out from the Garden of Eden. And so in both cases of the goat, the people of Israel were spared, that the goats were substituted in their place, that one goat took the punishment of the sin, the other transferred the, the presence of the sin away. Now, I realize it's 2021. Surely, you might ask, we've evolved. Surely, this sounds a little bit archaic and a little barbaric and a little out of date, we might think. That our society might think that. You might think that, perhaps. I would suggest, uh, to respond to that, I think that one of the, if we think that, I think part of that reason is that we have a, have a convoluted and very warped idea of sin and forgiveness that we are quite literally making things up as we go along, and I mean that literally. That we wanted to, to remove God from all aspects of our life, but then we don't understand that once we remove God from the equation, we have nothing left, and we are literally making it up as we go along. We think in our, in our, in our modern age, surely we've moved past this. I'm reminded of something Walker Percy once said. He, he said, you live in a deranged age, more deranged than usual, because despite great scientific and technological advances, man has not the faintest idea of who he is or what he's doing. And so when we look at the modern view of sin, we, I think we tend to think of it as, uh, again, archaic, it's unnecessary, it's a little bit over the top. On one hand, we want to say that morality is subjective, what's right for you is right for you, what's right for me is right for me. We talk about our truth, I need to own my truth, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. The problem is, what happens when my truth goes against your truth? What happens against when my morals go against your morals? Your morals might be to keep your wallet, my moral is to, is to take your wallet. Which one's right? The Taliban have been in the news quite a lot lately. And to put it mildly, they have a very different idea of what life should be like. And any outrage that you might feel about how they want to conduct their lives and conduct their country, if God is not in the picture, who are you to tell them otherwise? Who are you to judge them at their truth, at their morals? Moral relativism can't and won't last in any meaningful way that we need to proclaim and need to have an understanding of a biblical view of morality. We need to have a biblical view of sin. We need to have a standard that's outside of, my, of ourselves. And the Bible helps us to realize that we don't have it all together. Romans 3.23 is a harsh but a beautiful verse that for all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's our modern view of sin. I think we also have a modern, uh, a warped view in, in modern times of forgiveness. That the rise of social media, for those who are on social media, allows your entire life to be chronicled. And not just chronicled, but then used against you. That people lose their jobs and their lives are ruined because of past mistakes they've made. 
I'm reminded of um, back in, in March 2020, actually a couple of months ago, back in March, uh, the, teen, the, the editor of Teen Vogue, which I'm sure is widely read here, uh, Alexi McCammon, uh, she was 27 years old at the time. And in 2011, when she was 17 years old, uh, these pictures came up from when she was 17, so 10 years prior. And these pictures came up, and even in, they, they were, that she had put on social media, and some of these pictures she had even deleted, but they still, uh, they still surfaced. And these pictures were, quote, racist and homophobic. And so she was the editor, editor of Teen Vogue, which is quite a significant um, publication. She made several apologies to different groups, like the owner brought her around all the different groups of, of the company, and she apologized to them. One of those photos was of her at a Halloween party, and she was wearing a Native American costume. And so because of that photo and other ones, she was deemed racist and homophobic. Now, that, that's a whole separate conversation on whether that should be allowed. I'm not really quite interested in that right now. But what is, what is interesting is that despite the fact that she was 17 years old, despite the fact that these pictures were 10 years old at that time, despite the fact that she went around and, and said uh, that she apologized, she truly heartbroken over this, despite the fact that she apologized profusely, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough, and she was ousted from her job, forced to resign. Last year, uh, there was a New York Times op-ed, and the writer said, there's just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement. It's an interesting word for the New York Times. Demand constant atonement, but actively disdain the very idea of forgiveness. A society and a people that's unable to forgive is an unhealthy one that we need to return to a biblical understanding of sin and forgiveness. That such a, such a position says that, yes, I am a sinner. But even though I'm a sinner and I hate my sin, God is greater. And God's grace covers my sin. That there's forgiveness for those sins. And that points us to the next point, which is the fulfillment in Christ. We have the form, we have the function, and we also have the fulfillment so whenever a wrong has been done, the question is, how do we make things right? That's our first thing. Whenever we've offended somebody, we want to know how to make it right. When it comes to God, how do we make it right? Either we can do it ourselves or God does it for us. Either we make it right ourselves or God does it for us. So we can try to do it ourselves, and we can do it without religion or with religion. Let's imagine we want to do it without religion because surely we progress uh, past religion for some of us. Uh, so what do we do? We measure ourselves up by our friends who are worse than us. We measure ourselves up to our neighbors or our coworkers. We measure ourselves to the moral standard of society. We're better than our friends, so we must be good. The problem is if our standard of righteousness is the culture and society, it's always going to be shifting, and you're never going to be able to keep up. So, so for example, you might hear the word progressive. Well, what did progress mean? How do we define progress? That's a very important question. And so I think of, um, so a week ago, on the 18th, marked a year since the judge, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, died. And she's a very significant voice in the country. She's very progressive. And she died. And when she died, the ACLU, the, the American Civil Liberties Union, they came out with a statement when, when she died. It said, few individuals have had such a dramatic and lasting effect on a particular area of law, 
such as um, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who directed the work of the ACLU Women's Rights Project from its founding in 72 until the appointment of, of the federal bench in 1980. In her honor, we will be dedicating the ACLU Center for Liberty at the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Liberty Center. She leaves a country changed because of her life's work. They said that when she died. Now, we just passed the year anniversary, and in her honor, that same ACLU posted a tweet, which is on the screen. And I want you to notice what they said. By the way, this isn't, they, they, they gave a little description. What matters is the picture in the blue. Here's what it says. The decision whether to have a child, this is a quote from uh, Ginsburg, the, the decision whether to have a child or not is central, is, a, is central to a person's life, to their well-being and dignity, when the government controls that decision for people, they are considered less than fully adult human, uh, than full adult, adult responsibility uh, for their own choices. Now, in that context, she's speaking about abortion. Now, you might notice there, there are words that are bracketed. And whenever you read an article and something is in brackets, what that means is that the person that they're quoting didn't actually say that. And so they're inserting the word. Now, if you notice, there's a common theme in all of those bracketed words. The common theme is that they're all gender-neutral language. Because what Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually said was, the decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a woman's life, to her well-being and dignity. It is a decision that she must make for, her, for herself. When the government controls that decision for her, she is being treated as less than a fully human, uh, adult human responsible for her own choices. Now the question is, why would the ACLU, with such a storied history and reputation, change those words? Well, the, very re the reason why they did that is because Gin even, Gin even Ginsburg is not immune to the quote-unquote progress of society because the very same ACLU that quoted Ginsburg there is the very same ACLU who argues a lot that men can be pregnant. That if you, if you are a biological female and you identify as a male, you are therefore a male, and because you are therefore a male and you get pregnant, men can become pregnant. And so what, the, what do they do? They quoted Ginsburg, but they inserted their own words in there. They, sent, they, they redacted what she said. They added to what she said. Even Ginsburg, for all of her progressiveness, is not immune. And if you shape and anchor your moral standards onto society, you're going to be standing firmly planted in midair, which is to say not firm at all, and you're always going to be shifting with the wind. That's without religion. With religion, you might try to make yourself right with religion, with God, we do, we, we might think that if we do all the right things, the religious things, and God going to be pleased with us, and because God's going to be pleased with us, he's going to bring us into his family. And if you're familiar at all with Jesus' ministry and the gospel, this is one of the things he constantly butted heads at with the Pharisees, because the Pharisees did all the right things on the surface. They had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Memorized. They had all the rules memorized. And not only that, they looked at the rules and said, you know what? We can do better. And so they added more rules. How did Jesus respond to them? He called them whitewashed tombs. That they, were, they looked great on the outside, pure, clean, but they were dead on the inside. And so you and I need to remember Ephesians chapter 2, that we cannot work for our salvation. 
that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, that not of our own doing, it's the gift of God, not a, not a result of works that nobody can boast. And so can you do it yourself? Can I do it myself? No. Even in our pick ourselves up by our bootstrap society, we have to realize and remember that not, not only can we not live up to the moral standards of society, I can't even live, live up to my own standards. I need someone else to save me. And, and what would be great for us this morning is to let the harshness of Romans 3.23 be the smelling salt to wake us up to that reality. We all long for Eden, as Tolkien put it, but we can't get there on our own. And the tabernacle, going back to the tabernacle, we need God to do it for us. The tabernacle is that answer. It's a reminder that only in Christianity do we see God come to us, that God come to people, that since Eden, we've been separated from the intimate presence of God, but no longer. And every other religion, every other worldview, it's you earning your way, you doing X, Y, Z, but you can never do it. The temple is God coming down to us. And, and actually, even more than that, the incarnation of Jesus, which is God becoming flesh, what we celebrate every Christmas, that's God coming down to us. Matthew chapter 1, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Remember John chapter 1, the beautiful prologue about Jesus? It said, in the beginning was the word, talking about Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then you skip down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt is lit- what that word literally means, is tabernacled, pitched a tent. I-, I like how the message translated it. Moved into the neighborhood. He dwelt. So think about the veil and the temple. Think about what, that, what all that symbolized, that separation. Think about what happened when Jesus died on the cross. That the, the veil, remember, the, the veil separated the Holy of Holies from everything else. That only the high priest could go there once a year. And again, he wore bells on, around him in case he died and they had to pull him out. And when you read the gospel and you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and, and how G, when, what happened when Jesus died on the cross, one of the very first things that happened was that the veil, that veil, that very same veil, was torn in two. From top to bottom. And, I, and by the way, I love that description that is top to bottom. Because you know it wasn't just like a little kid with some scissors just having some fun. It's from top to bottom and it's torn in two. What does that symbolize? Symbolize that now there's no separation. There is no separation. That only those who were clean could approach God. And you and I, because we were under the curse of the law, had no standing before a holy God. And this is what Paul gets at in Galatians chapter 3. That Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We can't save ourselves. Only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus can save us. Paul Miller, in his book, J-Curve, which I would highly recommend, he says, every culture of death, uh, excuse me, every culture had death at the center. In the post-Civil War South, the lynching to black men protected white culture. In communism, the death of the middle class freed the, the working class. In Nazism, the death of the Jews preserved the, the purity of the Aryan race. In secular li- liberalism, abortion protects a, a woman's freedom of choice. Someone has to die so others can live. Outside of Jesus, it's always someone else who dies. Someone else is the problem. Our founder's death lies at the center of our faith. 
Instead of killing our enemies so we can live, he died so that we, his enemies, can live. I read this story about how at Niagara Falls, which is in the north, it's about 160 feet tall, about 15 stories or so high. And there's over 75,000 gallons of water that flow over it every single second. Your average bathtub at about 80 gallons, you can go ahead and do the math. But in, in, at Niagara Falls, there's a spot at Niagara Falls called the, the Cave of the Winds. And in the Cave of the Wind, you can get really near to it, but not, but not directly under it. And what's interesting about the Cave of the Wind is that there's thousands of, of gallons of water and tons of water that flow over the fall every single second. And just before it gets to where you're standing, the Cave of the Wind, there's a rock. And that rock takes the brunt of all that weight. That you would be crushed in a millisecond under all of that weight. On the rock, you're safe. You're safe because the fury of that water hits the rock and it passes over you. And on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath that you and I deserve. He redeemed us and he buys us back by paying the price himself. This changes everything about us. If we truly understand this, it changes everything about us. It changes our understanding of the past and our past. It changes the present. It changes how we live and move in this world right now. But it also affects how we see the future. The future. What is the future of the box as we close here, Revelation chapter 21, we see a glimpse of the hope that we have. First of all, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, it says, then God, and again, it's this vision of the future, it said that God's temple in heaven would open and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Now that's strange. I thought you couldn't see the ark because the ark was in the Holy of Holies. The ark was, split, was, was uh, uh, covered the ark was blocked off. The view of the ark was covered by the veil. How do they see it now? Because there's no veil. There's no separation between God and man. In Revelation 21, we see how an angel measures the new Jerusalem. You want to guess with me what those dimensions are? It's a perfect cube. The last box, the last nesting doll is a perfect cube once again. And in verse, uh, also in later parts of chapter 21, it gets even better. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for a temple with the Lord God, the Almighty, in the land. That no temple is needed because God is present with his people. That is the hope that you and I have. If we are in Christ, that is the hope that you and I have. That God has acted in the past by way of the incarnation of Christ. This affects everything about us in the present and it gives us the hope for the future. God is not silent. And in a world of suffering and pain and heartache and angst, that is something we have to remember. That is, that is a balm to our weary souls. In a world that's looking for answers in the midst of suffering, God has not left it to grasp at straws and to grasp at air. The tabernacle reminds us, this box reminds us that God is with us and we can know him. And the question is, do you know him? That the good news, that there was separation, but now there's not. The good news of the gospel is that while you and I were enemies of God, Christ died for us. That is good news.
I'll be wrestling in that news today. I'm going to call the praise team to come up. And as they close with this last song, I think it's a wonderful time for us to reflect on the truth and the promises of Scripture. It tells us that for, for all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do we have a, a biblical view of salvation? Do we have a biblical view of sin? Do we have a biblical view of ourselves? And so as we sing, maybe we reflect on that. I would love to pray with you, but Pastor Jared would love to pray with you. But let's pray together before we sing. Father, I, pr- I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, for the reality that you are there and that you care for us. And we see that ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ. May we have a proper and biblical understanding of ourselves. And may we see the good news and understand the good news that Jesus is that scapegoat who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.